to open your Bibles to Psalm 33. Psalm 33. Let's read and then we'll pray. Verse 1, it says, Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, for praise from the upright is beautiful. Praise the Lord with the harp. Make melody to Him with an instrument of ten strings. Sing to Him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. For the word of the Lord is right, and all his work is done in truth. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of the peoples of no effect. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he has chosen as his own inheritance. The Lord looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men. From the place of his dwelling, he looks on all the inhabitants of the earth. He fashions their hearts individually. He considers all their works. No king is saved by the multitude of an army. A mighty man is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a vain hope for safety. Neither shall it deliver any by its great strength. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his mercy to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart shall rejoice in him because we have trusted in his holy name. Let your mercy, O Lord, be upon us, just as we hope in you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much, Lord, for that time of worship. Lord, we thank you for being able to gather as a body of uh, believers, people who, as the psalmist said, placed our faith in you, trusted in you. And now we sing together, Lord, songs of praise, of remembrance, uh, of worship, uh, Lord, uh, songs of encouragement to you because of who you are and what you've done, Lord. We thank you that we have a place that we can gather together as saints, as, as those set apart, called out by you, Lord, your church, gathered together Lord, with the freedom to worship you without fear, Lord, to study your word, Lord, without fear, without hindrance. Lord, we thank you so much for the blessings that you've given us here tonight. Lord, we thank you for your word. 
We pray that you would speak to us as Mariel prayed uh, after worship, Lord, that it would be your spirit speaking to our hearts through your word, Lord. As the psalm says, your word stands forever, Lord. And we ask that you would speak in your name. Amen. So this psalm, uh, it's one of the psalms that we see, of course, um, if you notice, in if your Bible has the little subtitles and stuff like that in there, this doesn't have anything mentioning who wrote it. We don't know. There are some who believe that this psalm uh, is a follow-up psalm to Psalm 32, uh, which obviously we're not looking at tonight. But Psalm 32 is a, is a psalm of David, and it's all about the man who has been forgiven. It's all about the Lord's grace and mercy in overlooking sin, in, in uh, remaining faithful to someone who has transgressed, and for bringing that person to repentance and, and uh, the, just the mercy and the grace of the Lord. Um, so Psalm 33, of course, it, it, it goes very well with Psalm 32, even if it is not a continuation of that psalm or wasn't, when it was written, meant to be a partner to that psalm. Uh, nevertheless, it's a psalm that in and of itself stands uh, with uh, encouragement and exhortation to us as believers. It starts out here with um, <clears throat> six lines, and we see... Six different times words for praise, rejoicing, joy, worship of the Lord here. We see the first one, rejoice, which is a cry out for joy. It's a spontaneous outburst. You know, we, we humorously sometimes see kind of in the, the southern black churches, you see, praise the Lord. Hear that all the time, right? It's that kind of jubilant, loud, boisterous, thank you. To the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous. Right here we see it's a call to those who have been sanctified, who've been set apart, who've been made right by the Lord. So the first question for ourselves is Am I right with God? Am I righteous? We know the scriptures say that there is no one righteous, no, not one. So how can we stand before the Lord? And rejoice in him if we look at ourselves in our hearts and say we're not righteous. We know it's because of Jesus and the work that he's done. His grace and mercy towards us. That he's made us righteous. He's done the work. And the right response from us is praise. Is rejoicing in him. Shouting for joy. Showing him our gratitude. Towards him. Rejoice in the Lord. It starts there. How often do we start our days out with rejoicing in him? We have all the reason to rejoice. I used to tell the high school, high school youth group um, when I was teaching them years ago. Uh, and it was more along the lines of, of not needing to fear or have anxiety about anything. But it, all, it goes the other way as well. It is we have every reason to rejoice because the Lord has dealt with the two things that we cannot escape at all. Every person, every man, every woman cannot escape these two things, and that's sin and death. 
And yet the Lord, if we've placed our faith in him, he's delivered us out of both sin and death. And because of him doing that work on our behalf, we have every reason to cry out for joy to him, no matter what the situation is. He's dealt with the things that we can't deal with. He's done the work. He's made us righteous if we're trusting in him. It's his character, his mercy, his love towards us. And so we have the call, rejoice in the Lord. For praise from the upright is beautiful. Praise. That word for praise is a song or a hymn. It's not just something spoken, it's something sung out. Praise from the upright is beautiful. Is beautiful. That word beautiful is comely or fitting. It goes right back into what I was just talking about there. That praise, singing songs of worship to the Lord, is fitting for those who have been redeemed by Him. It's our response. When you come in to church, do you sing? Do you praise the Lord? Do you enter into worship? If not, where's your heart? We're, I mean, we've been going through the Psalms. What are the Psalms? It's a book of songs that were sung to the Lord in praise. We're called as men, as women, to praise the Lord in song, in rejoicing, to worship Him. For some, it, maybe it's a matter of humility. You need to be humbled out. It doesn't matter what you look like, what your voice sounds like what people see when you're singing, whether you know all the words or not. Humble yourself and sing and worship and praise the Lord. Do you have things to be thankful to him? If you're not willing to do that, then what about all the bigger things the Lord wants you to trust him with? Just a simple humbling yourself before him and singing out to him, praising him. It's beautiful and it's fitting. It's right. It's our right response Romans 12, 1, you guys know it. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Presenting our bodies to him. It's, it's, part of that is praise, worship, rejoicing in him, singing to him. It's fitting. It's beautiful. It's comely. For praise, for singing, to come from those that the Lord has made righteous. Verse 2, it says, praise the Lord with a harp. This is again a different word here for praise, for rejoicing, for worship. And it means to give thanks. So worship is not meant to just be a cappella. Right? It's with an instrument too. Not everybody can play an instrument. I know that I've, I've tried to pick up the guitar many times and I'm terrible at it. Thankfully, I, I got like the stupid person's version of a guitar, which is just four strings instead of six. And I can play the bass a little bit. But, uh, you know, not everybody can play the instrument. And yet we see this is actually the first psalm that we see an instrument is actually called to be used in worship of the Lord. But to give thanks to him, to thank him with the harp. The next one is make melody to him with an instrument of ten strings. And that means to sing praise or to make music. So it's, it's singing and the accompaniment together. 
on an instrument of 10 strings, we have no idea exactly what it is, but it had 10 strings. Uh, to worship him with songs, with songs with instruments, with songs uh, of uh, praise and thanksgiving to the Lord, uh, a song or a hymn uh, of right doctrine, a crying out for joy to the Lord. We're, we're called to do that. It's our responsibility as believers, as Christians, to praise him, to make music, to give thanks. Verse 3. Sing to him a new song. Let's just sing that word there. But still, it's, it's a form of that. But sing to him a new song. Play skillfully or strike the strings with a shout of joy. It's jubilant praise. Remember David, King David, he wanted to bring the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. It had been captured by the Philistines. Uh, and there was the whole series of um, mishaps in David um, and the Israelites going about bringing the Ark of the Covenant home in the wrong manner. If you remember, they put it on a cart instead of following what the law said to carry it with poles. And on the cart, it started to tip, and one of the guys who was guarding the cart put his hand out to steady it, and as soon as he touched it, he was struck down dead. Right, Remember that whole thing? Well, after David and Israel being humiliated and humbled before the Lord, then, then finally the Lord allows the Ark of the Covenant to be brought back to Jerusalem. And as they're going, every few steps they're stopping and praising the Lord with joy. And David is there and he's, he's dancing uh, with just abandon before the Lord and, and and dancing out before him with joy and praise and singing to him. That's the picture that we have to sing to him a new song. You know, the Psalms, we have the Psalms. We, it's an older Old Testament book, um, you know, written by, we have Psalms written by David, uh, by Moses, by Asaph, by Solomon, uh, by the sons of Korah, uh, by uh, others as well. We have these here, but we actually have a command, and we see it actually throughout the scriptures to sing new songs before the Lord. You know, there we haven't dealt with it for a long time in our church, but there, there was a time we had a, a small handful of people that came to our church, didn't like how we did worship. Because we didn't do a lot of hymns. We didn't have, you know, all the old hymns that we were doing. And the criticism was, was that the hymns are, you know, good right doctrine. And all this new, new worship is, is not the same quality as the hymns. The worship we do here, it's scriptural. It's doctrinal. It, it's, it's biblical. Uh, and because it's new does not mean it's bad. We're called to sing new songs to the Lord. To remember them, I mean, we again, we have the book of Psalms. We go back to things over and over again. In fact, a lot of our worship is taken from the Psalms. But singing a new song before the Lord, why are we called to do that? It's because the Lord does new things in our lives for us. And so we're called to praise Him and thank Him for what He's done for us individually. 
and to give him praise for what he's done for us individually. Psalm 43, verse 3, the Lord put a new song in David's mouth. Psalm 98, verse 1, Israel was called to sing a new song for the marvelous things that the Lord had done for them. Psalm 144, verse 9, David sang a new song to the Lord because the Lord had delivered him from the sword. Israel was called to sing a new song to the Lord because of his simple pleasure in them in Psalm 149. Israel and all the earth was to sing a new song to the Lord because of the triumph of the Messiah in Psalm 42, verse 10. The whole earth is called to sing a new song to him. In Revelation 5, the 24 elders that are before the throne of God, they sing a new song because the Lamb is worthy to take the scroll, because he was slain and he redeemed the elders to God by his blood out of every tribe, tongue, and nation. If we place our faith in him and we're going to be there, I believe the 24 elders represent the church. And I believe we will be there and we have that every tribe, tongue, and nation, those who have been redeemed to God by his blood. That means that we, when we're in heaven, will sing that new song. Revelation 14, verse 3, the 144,000 Jews who were redeemed from the earth in the great tribulation, sealed with the Lord's name on their foreheads and their right hands. They sing a new song that no one can learn except for them. What a privilege that is. We're called, sing a new song. Do you have things that the Lord has done for you lately? Is your relationship current with the Lord? Are you relying on Him? Are you stepping out in faith in Him? Asking Him to move on your behalf. Trusting Him for it. And then praising Him for those things. Do you praise him? We're called, you know, we have that thing called a prayer closet that we read about, right, in the New Testament, about going into a closet, secretly praying. Do you worship the Lord? We pray, we talk to him, we ask him for things, but do we worship and thank him in that same way? Do we have that intimate relationship with him? It's not going to look that pretty, sound that great, you know, if we don't all have beautiful voices, right? But it's the attitude of our hearts towards him that the Lord's looking for. Are we singing to him? Are we worshiping him? And we even have this striking the strings, playing skillfully with a shout of joy. You know, uh, you had this kind of response to what we see nowadays and it's not good in a lot of the mega churches you have this kind of hyper professionalism in their worship ministry they're 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 professional paid musicians on their worship teams and, and they have all the latest gear and they have all all the most expensive instruments and they have all of these you know, uh, things that they do and techniques that they, they've learned to do all of this stuff. And, and it was really uh, borrowing showmanship from the world and taking it into the church rather than being truly, humbly led by the Spirit. 
And so in some churches, there was a, a pushback and a response to that to say, well, anything where you have, you know, sound effects with the guitar or you have, you know, someone who wants to learn how to play something right and to practice it and to learn it, to get the technique down to do it right, that that was frowned upon as not being filled with the spirit and worship, not being spirit led. Um, when there's a balance there. We're called play skillfully. We're told to do whatever we do as unto the Lord. And, and we're, we're called to be devoted to him. And, and we're called to, to uh, do whatever we're doing with a devotion to him where we're seeking to do it better and better. And so we see that here, playing skillfully. It, it, there's no criticism against someone who is working hard to craft something. I think of David in writing these psalms. The Holy Spirit inspired him. No, no doubt. I mean, we have that throughout the scriptures. New Testament says it, that the Spirit of the Lord speaking by David wrote these things. right? But David, he had to learn how to play that harp. He had to learn how to play that lyre. I'm sure there are many times where he was going over verses lyrics in his head as he was out there with the with the sheep and he's shepherding them or he's on the road with his army or or he's in his throne room there there was a an intentional working at crafting worship and praise to the lord do we put effort in to what we give back to the lord or are we haphazard about it there is something of resting on and, and trusting the Spirit to guide us. We shouldn't be so locked down to this is how it always has to go and this will produce the right result in my ministry that I'm doing. That's the wrong way to go about serving the Lord. But at the same time, if you say, well, the Lord's got it. I'm not going to prepare. I'm not going to, you know... I'm not going to tune my guitar. Uh, I'm going to just come to church and hope the Lord has something here for me and I'll just open my mouth and it'll come out. That's not what we're called to as Christians, right? As a Bible teacher, if, if, if I don't spend time studying the text, looking at the context, reading it, letting it soak and sink into my heart and preparing my heart before I come here, then... Uh, it's very easy for me to go off on something that, that's not in the text. That, that maybe the Lord's not wanting uh, for you to hear or to share. Hopefully I'm, I'm praying and being led by the Spirit. And there are times where, you know, we have in the New Testament, uh, the apostles were told, you know, when they go before these magistrates and kings, don't prepare what you have to say. But the Spirit will give you the words to speak. There are times for that. But... They had the words to speak because they were in the word. They knew the scriptures. They had spent time with the Lord. There was an effort that they put into it. And it's the same for us as Christians. Are we seeking to put effort into what we are giving to the Lord? Or is it just a, here you go, God. Take it. Remember David, when uh, he went to, to find land, to build the temple near Jerusalem. 
remember it was the I forget what a, what, what the name of the guy was, but it was a threshing floor, right? And he went to go get that threshing floor, and he said, "I'm going to buy this threshing floor," and and the owner of it said, "No, I'll give it to you." And, and I'm butchering all of this. I'm not paraphrasing or anything. I'm just remembering how it goes. But uh, but David basically said no because I'm not going to just give something to the Lord because it was free to me and not have effort into it. So I'm going to pay for it. And then it will be a gift for me to the Lord. Effort, value, time spent, given to the Lord. Do we do that? Or do we just give the Lord what's easy for us to give? What's quick and easy and down and dirty and just, here you go, God. Or am I intentionally working at it? having effort in it. We're called to praise Him, to rejoice in Him, to spend time with Him. Rejoice, cry out for joy, praise, sing a song or a hymn. Praise the Lord, give thanks to Him. Sing praise, make music to Him. Sing to Him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. That's the response of a believer. That's what we're called to. Verse 4, for the word of the Lord is right or upright, and all his work is done in truth. He can be trusted. Here's the reason why we sing out to him. Because what he has spoken is upright. It's right. It can be trusted. It's faithful. We can trust him. We can take him at his word. And all his work is done in truth. There's no unfaithfulness there's no falsity there's no um, being fake about what he's done you can trust that what he says can be trusted and what he's done can be trusted that means if we place our faith in him if we confess our sins He's faithful and just to forgive our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We can trust him that we are forgiven. We can have assurance of salvation, not because of what we've done or who we are, but because of who he is. If he has accomplished this work, and and we have that throughout the New Testament, Jesus came, lived a sinless life, died on the cross taking our sins, paying the price for us. And the proof that his sacrifice satisfied God's righteous requirement for the wages of sin is death was that he rose again the third day. That was the proof. And that historical event is attested to by more eyewitnesses than any other historical event in ancient times. Hands down. There are no other events that have the number of witnesses, the amount of manuscript evidence, the number of uh, eyewitness accounts that are attested to where you have corroboration, but you have different perspectives. The four Gospels that we have. The testimony of Paul in his epistles. The testimony of the other uh, disciples, John, what we've seen, what we've heard, what we've tasted, what we've touched, all those things, all of that, all of this testimony, Jesus rose from the grave. 
because he rose from the grave, if we place our faith in him and trust him to forgive us, we have assurance of salvation. Because of him. Because of what he's done. Because of who he is. And we can take that historical thing and we translate it up to here and now. If we've walked with him for any time, we know I can trust the Lord. We have the personal, individual work that he's done for us. We can look back, those Ebenezer stone, those stones of remembrance, right, of, of help, of remembering. The Lord has done this for me. He brought me through this sickness. He provided for my family when I was out of work. Uh, he got me home when I was falling asleep in the car safely, right? He, he freed me from sin. We have those things where we can look back and see God's faithful in those. He's faithful in those, and I can trust him for whatever else comes. He loves righteousness and justice, verse 5. The Lord loves righteousness and justice. We look around at the world and we see unrighteousness. We see injustice. We see babies murdered in their mother's womb. We see, we see uh, wickedness abounding. I, I, I'm sick of seeing these videos of innocent people getting beaten to a pulp. Children. Old women. Old men. Beaten senseless and people sitting there on their phones just watching not doing anything that's injustice that's unrighteousness we see it all around us and it's easy if our eyes are on that to say where's God what's he doing but again we go back to his word is right his work is done in truth and we're told he loves righteousness and justice. And we look forward to the promises that he has where he will, he will mete out judgment. He will bring the people who are enemies of his to account for what they've done. And we can trust and know that that will come. We don't see it now necessarily. There are are some aspects of justice that we do see and we praise the Lord when there is justice and righteousness done in the earth. But ultimately, when Jesus comes back and rules and reigns with that rod of iron here on the earth, and, and when he judges the, the earth, that's when he fulfills these things. And it's in him and what he's done. And we can trust him for that. But look at what it says, verse 5. He loves righteousness and justice. And then it goes on and says, The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. I love how it's translated here. Um, the earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. I look around again and I, I don't see goodness. And yet the scriptures say the earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. You know what that word is there in the Hebrew? It's chesed. You should learn that word, chesed. Uh, you could pronounce it however you want. But it's love, kindness, and mercy. It's the Old Testament equivalent of our New Testament charis or grace. It's God's unmerited favor. 
The scripture is saying the earth is full of God's unmerited, unconditional agape love and grace. The earth is full of it. That's a statement of faith to look around and say the earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. What do we see? The reminder is just after this. We'll look at it in a second, but verses 6 and 7 all talk about creation, the power and awesomeness of the Lord over creation, his authority and what he has. I was uh, driving to work the other day, um, and uh, it was uh, one of the first rainy days that we had in a long time uh, in the morning, and I was blown away because I was driving down West Beach. I work on the south end of the island. Um, and uh, just across from Bell's Berry Farm there, uh, that open field, there's a new house that was built there and everything. Huge rainbow all the way across. You could see both ends, just beautiful, bright rainbow. The sky was dark behind it, but there's just massive rainbow. And I stopped and I got out of my truck, took some pictures, and I was just standing there staring. People were kind of slamming on their brakes. I was off the fog line, so... I was trying to be safe, but they didn't know what I was looking at. And I do that too. Somebody's standing and staring up at the sky. <laughs> you wonder, what are they doing? Is there a UFO out there or something? But uh, anyway, rainbow was there. I love rainbows. Uh, you can ask my wife. I'm kind of a nerd or dork or geek about rainbows or whatever. Anytime there's a rainbow, I'm out there trying to find where it's at to look for it. In fact, I'll grab the kids when I'm inside and I'll, I'll look outdoors and say, oh, I bet you there's a rainbow right now. And run outside, go up to the top of our driveway, and I'll look for, to find where the rainbow is. And I tell my kids, okay, find the sun. Wherever the sun is, if you turn and look the exact opposite direction, there's a rainbow. If the conditions are right, if it's raining over there and there's sun on this side. right? And I was thinking about that last night. Um, as I was just going over my notes and the, the, the study here about rainbows and that whole perspective. Remember, the rainbow is a sign of God's covenant that he's not going to destroy the earth with water again, like he did in the flood. Uh, and, and so when we as believers look at rainbows, it should be a reminder of God's grace and mercy every single time. It shouldn't be, oh, that's beautiful. Oh, you know, that's the LGBTQ plus whatever sign out there. No, it's God's grace and mercy and his love and his covenant that he has with the entire earth not to destroy it in that fashion anymore. It goes right against climate change and global warming. The earth's seas going to rise and flood everything out and all that. No, the Lord's not going to destroy the earth that way at all. We have the proof every time we see a rainbow out there. But I was thinking about rainbows. Rainbows come when there's rain, when it's dark and stormy. Right? And, but a rainbow gets lit up, and you look at the rainbow, and it's over there in that dark and stormy area. And the rainbow's there for you to remember the Lord. And in that same way, the perspective is... If you're looking at that, the Lord gives you that rainbow to see to know that he's over here. The sun shining. You turn around and you see the sun. And that same perspective is that this whole idea the earth is full of the Lord's grace 
His love, His kindness, and mercy. As believers, we need to have that before us in our hearts and our minds to remember what He's done for us. When we see the storms, when we see the darkness, when, when we see all of that stuff going on in the world, and we remember the Lord is gracious, kind, and compassionate. He's given us promises. He's given us the covenant of His love for us. And that then gets our perspective off of all this and onto him. And to turn around and to look at him. We need to have our perspective right. And it's, it's just this beautiful thing. This goodness, this mercy, this love, this kindness that the Lord has. It's in his character. It's who he is. We don't have time to go into it, but jot down if you've taken notes. Exodus 20 verse 6, and Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7. Exodus 20, verse 6, and Exodus 34, verse six is, verses 6 through 7. That's the Lord calling out his name and his character to the people of Israel. And he says specifically that his character, his nature is this, is chesed, love, kindness, mercy, goodness. It's who he is. We know in the Old Testament, God is love. That's what this is saying. He is love. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, verse 6, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. This is being attacked in our day and age. Creation, the lie of evolution, the false theory of evolution, going against what the scriptures have said, undermining the beautiful truth of God's power, character, and nature in creation. And we as believers need to stand upon these truths because they, they're a foundation for all the other things that the Lord has done for us when we trust Him and take Him at His word. The, by the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and all the host of them by the breath or the ruach, another word for spirit, of His mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap or in a vessel, and he lays up the deep in storehouses. He has power over all these things. We look up into the sky, and the Lord made that by his words. We see the stars, the sun, the moon, the planets, all of those things. They were made just by the breath of his mouth. Spoken out by the breath of his mouth. The seas, the things that, this massive, unfathomable depths, that crushing pressure if you try to go down very far at all in there. Uh, all of this, the Lord has control over all of it. We're told elsewhere, he, he's set a boundary for the waves to go and said, this far and no further. That's the power of the Lord. He has commanded over them, over all of creation and all of the earth. And because of that power, we can look out and we can see he's sovereign. He's over it. I can trust him. Verse 8, here's the response. Let all the earth fear the Lord. That's, that word fear is yare. It's a, an attitude of fear, reverence, respect. It's, it's, a, it's a state of being, of reverence towards the Lord. It's not just an emotional quick response. It's a, a choosing to be humble and to revere Him. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. 
So this is in contrast to that attitude of fear, reverence, and respect. Standing in awe is being terrified. It's a reaction because of his power and what he's done. For he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. That's what we see throughout scriptures. He speaks and it's done. He's commanded and it stood fast. We see that in Genesis all the way through. I was reminded, in fact, I got to this psalm because I've been reading through the Gospel of Luke. Um, And in Luke chapter 5, we see Jesus um, when the multitudes uh, around, I believe he's in Capernaum at the time, are, are gathering around and pressing in on him and he wants to speak to them. So he goes and he asks these fishermen if he can use their boat and gets in the boat and goes out into the Sea of Galilee so he can kind of get separate from the crowds and speak out to them. Well, it's Peter's boat that he's in. And uh, after he's speaking, he tells Peter to throw his net over on this side and pull it in for fish. And Peter says, uh, we've been fishing all night and we haven't caught anything. God, there's nothing here. Uh, and, and he says, but nevertheless, because of your word, I'll do this. And then we know the rest of the story. He casts the net over and he starts to try and pull this net in with all the fish and there's so much the boat begins to capsize. They have to get another boat over to help bring all the fish back in. But we see that in Scripture with Jesus, the God who created the heavens and the earth by the word of his mouth, by the breath of his mouth, he, the, the one who spoke all things into existence is the same one who walked the shores of Galilee, who stood there in the boat with Peter and said, Peter, put your net on that side. Pull those fish in. Peter said, because you've spoken and I'm going to do it. And he did it. It's the same God who calmed the seas. The same God who the centurion came to him and said, if you just speak a word, my servant will be healed, right? It's the same one who said, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus was risen out. It's the same God who on the cross said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. Our God is the God of creation, and he's the God of salvation. He's infinitely powerful, awesome, majestic, but he's personal, loving, kind, compassionate, caring for us individually. That's what we see going on. Look at verse 10. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. I love these verses here. He makes the plans of the peoples of no effect. Uh, Bringing the counsel to nothing. Bring to nothing is to crush or to break. To pulverize it. It says the Lord brings the counsel, the, the advice or purpose of the nations to nothing. He, he crushes them. He breaks it. You know, the United Nations just met. Um, and they had uh, a resolution that they uh, had all the nations sign. Um, there were ten nations that, that rejected it. And there were a bunch that abstained from it. But basically in the text, they, they said, your silence is taken as consent. 
basically, in these other nations. But it's uh, pandemic preparedness something. It's PPPR resolution. And basically it, it's saying that all the nations there will agree to comply with the pandemic treaty that they're trying to put forward. Um, where the stuff that we saw during COVID, they're learning their lessons from, and they're going to do it better the next time, how they handle everyone, and how they get compliance, and they get control, and how they do all of these things. These are the plans of the nations, the council of the nations. I thought it was so amazing. I was not planning on this here when I heard about that, and it was only after I studied this that I heard about that taking place and what they were signing. And I thought that how apt this is. The Lord brings the council of the nations to nothing. We may see them begin to succeed in, in their plans and what they're doing. We saw it happen with again with COVID. We saw it. We saw um, them learning how to control the American people by, they couldn't necessarily control the people individually just by telling them you wear a mask and you get vaccinated and you don't go to work now and you don't drive you don't leave your home you don't do this they weren't able to stop people from doing that just by telling people not to do it but they learned and they said okay how to do it is we're going to get them at their place of business we're going to make all the businesses have to comply in order to receive funds, in order to stay open, in order to meet L&I and OSHA rules, to all of these things. You have to comply with these things. You have to do that. Now people are losing their jobs or getting in line. They did it with the grocery stores. You can't come in here unless you wear a mask. If you're vaccinated, you don't have to wear a mask, but you know you can come in if you put this on, if you comply they had it with all of these other things, traveling, all of that. They learned how to do it and how to control a people who were free before. Uh, and that sort of thing is going to continue to take place going forward. Those are the plans that the nations have to bring about what they're seeking to do. And, and it's all leading up to what we read about in the book of Revelation. It's the Antichrist kingdom. Uh, I believe we are going to be out of here before that takes place. But I also believe that we, may, we might see the beginnings of that come to pass. But we don't know how long the Lord will tarry before that takes place. But nevertheless, whatever we see, however much we see, we have to stand upon God's word, which is right, and his work, which is done in truth, it won't be cast down, that he loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his goodness, and he brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. It's going to break it. It's going to end it. It's going to stop. They're going to think that they will have succeeded, and yet they will be brought to nothing. He makes the plans of the peoples of no effect. That word plans is thought, device, plan, or invention. I thought that was interesting. He make, brings the the inventions of the peoples of no effect, restrained or frustrated. I mean, they're trying to accomplish something and it's just not going to work. And that's the Lord. We see in opposition to that, verse 11, the counsel of the Lord stands forever. So his counsel, his purposes, his advice stands forever. Opposed to man's 
stands forever. His plan stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generation or from generation to generation. His will, his intention, his desire, the plans, his thoughts, his devices, his plans, his inventions of his desire, of his will, will stand forever from generation to generation. That means what we read about of God in the Old Testament stands from generation to generation to generation. The work that he did on Adam's behalf, on Jacob's behalf, on Noah's behalf, the work that he did on David's behalf, on the prophet's behalf, on the behalf of the apostles, the disciples, the New Testament church that we read about, all of that, all of his plans, the work that he's done that we read about in the scriptures and prophesied about to take place stands forever. Generation to generation, not going to change. We can trust him. We can trust him. He's had the plan of redemption from the very beginning. Remember, Jesus is spoken of as the lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. Meaning the work that he did, it was planned out from the beginning. That means it, it, it will be accomplished how he wills. We can trust him to accomplish it. We can rely on him and we have no reason to fear. We can trust in him. Verse 12, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he has chosen as his own inheritance. This is Israel. Israel is a nation whose God or Elohim is the Lord, Yahweh. They're the ones that he chose. Read the Old Testament. and Read how the Lord chose Israel out of all the other nations. The Lord said, you're my inheritance. You're my portion. I'm going to do this work in you. He chose them, and they're blessed because of it. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he has chosen as his own inheritance. You know, the scriptures say that we're his inheritance as well. In Ephesians 1, verse 18, says that we're his inheritance. When you read about the Lord choosing Israel, uh, again, we don't have time for it, but in Exodus 19 and Deuteronomy 7, uh, yeah, 7, um, we see the Lord talking about him choosing them, that becoming his special treasure. And he says that I didn't cho- choose them because they were a great nation. I didn't choose them because they were anything special. I didn't choose them for any of those reasons. I chose them because of my love and my own purposes. I chose them for that. The work that we see in Israel from Genesis to Revelation is testimony of God's power, His love, and His mercy. And as we step back as modern people and we look at the nation of Israel formed in 1948, 47, 48? Uh, 48, thank you. Um, I wasn't alive, so. Uh, but uh, that uh, people who did not have a homeland yet maintained their language, their religion, their scriptures, their culture, 
the Lord preserved that nation all the way through. And according to his promises that were in the scripture, a nation was birthed in a day. And that is proof of God's plans throughout the ages. Just like Jesus dying on the cross and the testimony we have of his resurrection in the New Testament, we see the Lord has given prophetic scriptures as proof of his power, of what of his plans, of proof that we can trust that if he's accomplished this thing, that was impossible. Impossible. All the world was against Israel, against the Jews. All the world was against them having their own land, them coming back, and yet the Lord accomplished it against all odds. All of that is a testimony to us as believers, as Christians. Back in the 50s, there was a move in biblical scholars to say that word chesed that we looked at earlier, love, was not God's unmerited favor that was the reason why he established a covenant with Israel. But they flipped it around and said that Israel received God's love because he made this covenant with them. And as long as they held to that covenant, they would receive his love. And that was exactly opposite from what the scriptures say over and over and over again. And it flies in the face of what the scriptures say in that if the Lord's promises to Israel are revoked. His covenant with Israel, if it's revoked, how do we as Christians have anything to stand on when it comes to salvation? His promises to us, his love for us, his unconditional love towards us, the new covenant that we have in Jesus' blood. How do we have any room to stand off if we step back and we say, God's done with Israel. They didn't keep the covenant with him. And so he's done with them. They don't have his love anymore. We can't. If we do that, we have no ground to stand upon as Christians. We're not being biblical. We're not being logical. We're not right-minded about what the scriptures say. If we step back and we say the Lord's done with Israel, he's chosen them. They're his own special inheritance, his people. He's not done with them. Read Romans 9, 10, and 11. Read it. Just read it. You have an issue with it, read it. And then bring your questions back. Look at the Old Testament promises and covenants and see that it was the Lord saying, I'm doing this. The Lord swearing by himself that he would accomplish these things. The Lord saying, this is relying on me, not you. There's going to be consequences if you don't keep the covenant on your end we see that but we always see the lord saying there's a remnant i will bring you back nevertheless i'll give you a clean heart a new heart i i I will bring you back i will put my spirit on you all of these things that we have promises the lord has given to israel he's not done with them and that is a testimony of his faithfulness that we as christians should stand upon Say, look at Israel. That is the reason I can trust the Lord. Not the only reason, but that's a huge reason we can trust the Lord. We can see the Lord working with Israel to preserve them. Now we'd see it all come down to the personal. Verse 13, I'm almost done. The Lord looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men. 
From the place of his dwelling, he looks on all the inhabitants of the earth. We have, just like in the first six verses, we have, I don't think there's six here, but we have a multitude of different ways that it talks about the Lord and how he looks at the people. The first one, the Lord looks from heaven, is this idea of scanning. He's, he's looking around. He's, he's surveying everything that's taking place. He's, he looks from heaven. He's scanning around. So he sees all the sons of men. That word see is consider. So now he's focused in on one. He's considering. He, he's focused in and he's, he's considering each individual person. And then we see verse 14, from the place of his dwelling, he looks. And that word look is to stare. Now, it's, he's intently focused on. He's staring at all the inhabitants of the earth. He sees everything. He knows the big picture. He knows us individually. And he knows us personally. And the Lord is looking upon all of us. He sees everything. And even more than that, verse 15, it's not just he's an outside spectator, but verse 15, he fashions our hearts individually. He's formed us. That that word fashion is the same word as a potter forming the clay. He's shaping our hearts individually. That should give us great hope. That means the Lord knew what you would do in your life before you came to him the sins you would commit, the mistakes you would make, the people you would hurt, the things that you would say, the thoughts you would think, the Lord knew. He formed your heart. He knows you. He knew when you would place your faith in Him and what He would do to bring you to that place where you can make that choice to place your faith in Him. The Lord fashioned your heart. That also gives us hope. As Christians, we still struggle with the flesh. Right, we're not we're not free from our sinful bodies, our sinful flesh. We're, we still have temptation. We still have wrong attitudes and and say dumb things and hurtful things, and we still sin and all of these things. The Lord knew that you would do those things when He saved you, when He died on the cross for you, while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. He knows. All of these things that we're going through. And yet he still loves us. Right? Means the mistakes that we may make still. The Lord knew that. When you were walking in joy with him. And things were fresh and new and right. Your first love with him. The Lord knew that you were going to trip up. And yet he still gave you those beautiful times of fellowship. And wants you to come back to that beautiful time of fellowship with him. And to walk with him. He fashioned our hearts individually. Zechariah 12.1, it says the Lord forms the spirit within man. He forms that part of us that, that makes that communion, that, that fellowship with the Lord. He's formed our hearts. He's fashioned us each individually. He knows each and every one of us. And he considers all of our works. The deeds of man are tested against his works, against his deeds. He knows all of it. And yet, the earth is full of all the goodness of the Lord. His chesed, his mercy, his love, his kindness. It's beautiful. He knows us. And he loves us. 
And he wants us to continue to walk with him in a relationship. To not get tripped up. If we sin, we confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we're depressed, if we're struggling, if we're despairing, the Lord knows what we're going through. He knows us. He, he sees the things where, where we say, how can I even get through this? The Lord knows. He knows our hearts. He knows our minds. He knows what we need. And He loves us. Despite our shortcomings, despite our failings, despite our sin, He loves us. And the proof is all throughout Scripture, throughout creation, and in our lives. It's there. The proof is there. We need to trust Him and walk with Him. Verse 16, no king is saved by the multitude of an army. No, there's no strength there. A mighty man is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a vain or a false deceptive hope for safety. Neither shall it deliver by any or deliver any by its great strength or great force. The strength of man, strength of horses, strength of armies, it's nothing to the Lord. Doesn't matter what it is. The Lord's power is above it. All the works of man are futile. Read Ecclesiastes. All is vanity, chasing after the wind. Smoke, a vapor that passes. That's all, all men are grass. Right? We have all this testimony throughout the scriptures of this. The greatest, strongest, best things that, that mankind can do are nothing. They're going to end. They're futile. There's no hope in them. But there is hope in the Lord. Verse 18, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him. That's a different... Uh, uh, no, that's the same word. The fear here is the same word. On those who fear Him, as before that attitude of waiting, uh, of... of um, sorry, not waiting, but uh, reverence uh, and uh, a consistent respect and fear towards him this state of being the lord is the eye of the lord is on those who fear him so even more than the look the scan the stare the considering the seeing his eye his very eye is on those who fear him if we fear him if we love him if we hope in his mercy, that word hope is to wait, hope, expect in his mercy. That's the same word as verse 5, chesed, his unfailing love, his loving kindness. If we hope in his mercy, his eye is on us to deliver their soul from death, to save us. All those great, powerful things, they won't deliver us. But the Lord and just his looking on us. We've placed our faith in him. He's delivered us from death. And not just that, but it says to keep them alive in famine. Abundance and famine. The Lord is sovereign over both. And he, he sustains us. We're in his hand. So here's our response. Our soul waits for the Lord. That's to tarry or to long for. Our soul longs for him. He is our help and our shield. He doesn't just pick us up when we're down or push us up from behind as the enemy's pummeling us. He stands in and blocks and then lifts us up so we can stand. He's our help and our shield. Our heart shall rejoice in him. 
This is a, a, a state of joy. It's, it's a continuous rested state of, of being joyful in Him. Our heart shall rejoice in Him. That's going to be the state of our hearts in Him. Because we have trusted in His holy name. We've relied on, we've been careless in Him. We have no need for anxiety in Him We've trusted in his holy name, his character. Let your mercy, O Lord, be upon us. Again, mercy, same word, chesed, be upon us, just as we hope in you. He's love. He's mercy. We hope and we trust in him. We need to remain in that attitude of rejoicing. We have things that are difficult, some things that... that Rightly, we have no idea what other people are going through. The Lord knows all of those things. He sees and He loves us. And He's working on our behalf. If we trust in Him, if we wait in Him, if we fear Him, He is working. And we can, we can take that to the bank. We need to persevere. We need to walk with Him and be faithful to Him to have that just joyfulness before Him. Lord, thank You for what You've done for us. Let's pray.